0: Dr. Amalia Ghanias-Malka, welcome to Womanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Joining us today in Sandton, South Africa, is the Deputy Secretary General of the United Nations, Ms. Amina Mohamed. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much. It's
0: great to be with you here in Santon. You have a multifaceted career. Prior to your position as Deputy Secretary General of the United Nations, you were Minister of Environment of the Federal Republic of Nigeria. And before your ministerial appointment, you served as Special Advisor to the UN Secretary General, Ban Ki-moon, on post-2015 development planning, addressing the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development, including the Sustainable Development Goals. Reflecting on your time in office at the UN as Deputy Secretary General, what have been some of your most memorable accomplishments?
1: I think some of the most uh, memorable times have been the, um, the way in which we've been able to bring member states, and member states are represented in the UN by permanent representatives, individually and collectively, quite incredible people working on um, issues that that, uh, challenge the world today in New York, but to bring them together with a whole plethora of different interests around the world, so with civil society from different regions, business from different regions, so really bringing the global village together. That, for me, through the four years that we all um, played a part in shaping The 17 goals and the 2030 agenda was perhaps the most exciting because we pushed ourselves. We said we'd leave no one behind, and we really stretched to see what did that mean. Where were the no ones, um, and how could we go to those that were further us behind? So my visit to Nauru, which is actually the smallest member state of the United Nations, tiny island in the middle of the Pacific, um, I decided to visit to say what would it really be like to make sure that they are included in this new agenda? What are their issues? Um, and was just you know totally um, bowled over by first uh, maybe the tragedy of the wealth that they had that did not pay for them, but at the same time still they're wanting very much to be a part of the global village. Um, and, and so from a country of about 10,000 people, that um, has 90% in terms of uh, diabetes type A, um, no chance of really um, uh, an education or a future outside of it, um, was, was really heartbreaking, and it was sort of like, what can we do to make sure they're part of the agenda? So that, that's a, that was a memorable visit, and it was, a, um, I think, a profound um, reflection of how we um, need to be real about the agenda, and so that makes it really cool. When we actually gaveled... Um, the agenda. When member states said we agree because that was tough, Uh, four years of negotiating what we said should be an inclusive agenda, Um, that was a memorable moment because it was relief that we had got the ambition that we set to get out, and now it was all about implementation. It's such an amazing collective, and I'm sure that there were probably a couple of hundred
0: ideal goals that were in place before you eventually whittled them down to 17. But what I find fascinating here is about the inclusive nature and being able to, as you say, leave no one untouched Mm -hmm. and engage. Because we're a gender-based show, we're always interested to hear about SDG number five on gender Mm -hmm. equality.
1: Well, you know, that was the one goal we never had any doubt would be there. It was sort of like um, it was not going to be acceptable. I mean, even when we said end poverty or hunger, um, Gender, the gender goal was always going to be there. The challenge for us was to see how that gender goal, um, with its targets and its indicators, would be the docking station for the other 16. So that when we talk about mainstreaming, in real terms, what did that mean? So when you go through each of the other 16 goals, you will see the threads of goal 5 in all of them. So it feeds those goals, So without which, we will not get the the whole 17. Um, And it really was grounded in, first of all, the successes that we had with the MDGs. We cannot say that we didn't have. We did get girls into school. We did acknowledge that, um, you know, uh, maternal mortality. And and that's when we really began to to see that child stunting, particularly with girls, was a really big issue with, with malnutrition. Um, And so all of those uh, successes, we had still gaps. We needed the scale to get everyone, and we built those into the gender equality goal. Um, And we built them into every other one, whether it was poverty or cities or consumption uh, or the partnership. um, They're all there. So it's a very special goal, um, and I think it it does galvanize people. Um, I think what's really more important, and through my visit in um, in South Africa this time, has been uh, the question of data and how um, if, as I said, we said, we really said we want to get everyone. Um, Disaggregated data is going to be important, not just by gender, but also by age, uh, by community. So you know where to make the investments. You're not just throwing money at a problem. You're actually investing in women so that we can bring up that 50% that we don't have. Um, When we say an eagle soars for a country, it cannot do that on half a wing. So, you know, we've got to make sure two wings there and that other wing is the gender equality goal. And interestingly, what I've come across in terms of corporate social
0: responsibility or corporate social Mm -hmm. investment put together by corporates uh, across the world, that they are taking a strong focus on what their efforts are going to do to
1: achieve and contribute to the SDGs. They are. I mean, when we engaged business, it was really tough because we speak different languages. And, and you know, a large part of our constituency in civil society also um, had borne the brunt of uh, not the not-so-good side of business. And so they were very anxious and cynical about it, and, and so it was very difficult. But it helped that we, they were there because they were able to, to, you know, set the bar for what it meant for business um, to make profit, not off the back of people, but with people at the center so that you know you can um, touch lives, you can empower people, and you can still get the bottom line. It's good business. Um, and I think when we decided that, you know, we've got some very really big issues that we need to address on, on climate change, and a lot of that has got to do um, with reducing emissions, and emissions connects to consumption and of course production. Um, and then saying to business, okay, now we can speak to you. How do we actually get around this? Um, and and really questioning what was sustainable about their businesses. So it went beyond corporate social responsibility. That's all good, and we really think it's um, sort of the entry point um, from the hand up to the handshake, um, as one of my colleagues often says to me. Um, And it's about investing in people, changing their business model. Um, And that's what we really found uh, to be the hook, is that you can have a different business model, and it can actually do better for you. It was also a hook for young people, because while we talk about women, young people of which 50% are women, um, it was very important to break that ceiling. And I often say that we have a glass ceiling for women, but for young people, there's a concrete one. And I think that we have to recognize that we must have the intergenerational change that affects young women. Because the brunt of a lot of what is happening today, whether it is violence, exclusion, lack of education, is happening to adolescent women. And that really is about our future and future generations. Uh, So business has been a big part of this, um, to see how we get our worth in the marketplace, in the workplace, how we are at the table, decision-making, and how really we also can be part of the new business era where technology plays such a big part and we're not left behind
0: And whilst on the topic of looking at it from a business point of view and looking at migrating and leadership uh, elements, women occupying positions in government and serving as heads of state I think is significant for several reasons. Firstly, it's about demonstrating the empowerment of women in governance. Secondly, women in these positions serve as role models, not just Mm -hmm. for other women, but also for young boys. And suitable gender representation, I think, is vital in terms of policy development as well as policy implementation. Could you give us some of your thoughts?
1: Yes. I mean, I think that apart from you get into a position of um, leadership, um, I think it's incumbent upon you once you've done that to open up that space further and keep making sure you bring in women. It's not just about mentorship. It's not just about being a role model. it's uh, it's actually about exposing young women and other people who need that opportunity. And I would say young men as well, because I think that excluding them is only going to make a bigger problem for us. So that whole gender equality is about everybody with equal rights and equal opportunities. Um, And I think that that's important. So exposure, I mean, a lot of what you see in my career has been the different exposures I've had to experiences um, from starting in the private sector, going through civil society as an activist, and ended up in the public space. And I think it's really important to just... You know, have a go. Your career, people say, what is, you know, this is your career path. You know, how long did you struggle to get into the UN? And then you make, I never struggled to get into the UN. Um, I struggled to try to make a difference in people's lives. And one of those paths led to the UN. Um, So I think opening up that space, um, there are a lot of very simple things that we can impart to young people um, about the space, lessons, so that while we're all, You know, have the experience, bring them to table, fall down, pick yourself up. I think there are some things that we can do that you fall less. And I think that's important. That's what we bring to the table. They're not things that you can write in a book, they are not things that you can go public about because it's just part of that journey. And they're experiences that, you know, you can share one on one or with a small group of women so that it empowers them. And I think that's what it should be about, is that um, keep on empowering, opening up the space, uh, the knowledge, the experience. Uh, Giving courage of conviction um, is to show how vulnerable you, as a leader, um, perceive to be invincible. Um, have all those vulnerabilities, have had all those experiences that people are so afraid of, are constantly, you know, double-checking yourself as you go out onto stage to say something or as you walk into a meeting where you're going to chair, um, what well, mostly is probably 80% around the table, men. Um, you constantly second-guessing yourself and checking. Um, and every now and again, you just take a deep breath and say, this is it, I can do it and I can do it better. And, and you walk in there and you don't know how you get through it. But at the end of the day, you've gotten through it. So the vulnerabilities, um, that's why we, we are who we are. That's why we do the things that we do, because we understand.
0: We mentioned earlier about the technology strides and utilizing technology as a core principle and, and a core driver, and also how you came into the UN via your different experiences. I saw in your Twitter feed you have a post pinned which says, my job description is simple to build a world where every girl and boy has the tools and support to make their dreams a reality. Given our world now, education is a critical factor, technology are key resources. How can we ensure that our youth, particularly in developing countries, don't get left behind in this tech revolution?
1: I think uh, we in, in uh, positions of leadership have to keep asking that question. I, I do all the time, every time a delegation walks into my office or I have a meeting of a country team um, or just civil society comes, I'm always looking for the numbers of women around the table, and I will call it out. Um, it's sometimes, And I, you do it in a humorous way sometimes because what you want to do is engage people. You don't want to attack them. Uh, You want to just make it very clear that, you know, things have to change. But I also do it now for youth, and I do it for technology. And the Secretary General's been really big on technology and, you know, um, are we ahead of the curve or behind the curve with artificial intelligence? What is the world going to look like in 2030? Not just in terms of ending poverty, but the opportunities that technology brings. But there's also a dark side, and if we don't have a check and balance on that, then we could lose a lot of people. And leave them behind. So for women, I think this is even, even more um, of an imperative that we make sure they get the right education. So it's not just putting them through school, but the education that they need in science. Um, And so the STEM programs that you see are really important. And that when they leave, you you open up again. uh, Try to find the businesses that you can connect that can give them this opportunity too. So young girls in Africa that are doing coding, amazing work that is happening there is great. Um, This morning I spoke about the value chain with agriculture and where technology is coming in and innovation. And I was saying there's no reason why women can't use drone technology to plant. Why do they have to break their backs with a hoe? Um, this is gone, and you know, if you want farmers to uh, transition generations, then you need to bring technology with it to make it exciting, to get into the food systems, and, and to really um, be producers and and uh, people who create jobs and are not just taking a job. It, it drives scale. It drives oh. efficiency. Yes, I mean, you know, it's also exciting. I mean, we've we've got to wake up in the morning wanting to go do something, right? Wanting to go do your work. People ask me about how hard my job is, but frankly, I enjoy it because, you know, I'm looking to see what is the difference that I can make today in people's lives? How can that have a knock-on effect with just the one thing that we open up at the UN in terms of space, convening, um, networking? Uh, What what is it that we can do even more? So every day I wake up creating more work, because there is just so much more to do. But when you see the impact, I mean, it's just overwhelming. There is no salary or uh, position uh, that that beats that.
0: Absolutely not. Now, going back a little in time, you are the eldest of a family of five daughters, born in northeastern Nigeria. You studied in Nigeria, the United Kingdom, and Italy. Can you share with us some of the obstacles that you've encountered as a woman, not as a means of of opening up injuries or, or anything like that, but just to demonstrate to anyone listening on the show that the successes that women like you have achieved today have come through tremendous hard work. These things weren't presented on a silver platter
1: no, but I would have been considered to have been born with a silver spoon in my mouth in Nigeria because my father was a civil servant and my mother a nurse, and I come from a mixed background. My mother was British and father Nigerian, and we lived in the what would be called the GRA, the General um, Reserved Area, in Nigeria. So we would have been considered a uh, silver spoon, but we had to work really hard because in those days a public servant was just that. Um, and so we went to public schools, um, and you know, uh, we grew up with, with an education that was, um, I think, probably all all round. We learned to do many things. Uh, so it wasn't just about your English and math and science, but it was also about your needlework and your your cooking. Um, but as I started to to join um, the workforce, that was the most difficult um, because it was all it was a man's world. Um, And so even then, you were never thought, had the competencies to do it. I don't think I would have been given the same chances in the work that I first started uh, by my own fellow compatriots as I had by those who came in from the UK. So it was actually an Irish engineer that opened up the doors for me and a German architect. Um, And I then was able to work through, I'm a very difficult um, circumstance. I mean, look, we were architects and engineers. We were designing and building hospitals and schools all over the country. I was having to do the project management, so I would go out to the field six, seven hours down the road in a car. It was difficult to stay in hotels in that time. Um, if you didn't have a, chore, a, door, a chair up your door, you would do that six-hour journey and go back so, because you couldn't stay the night and then go back again six hours, and then back again. So it was, it was quite a ridiculous way of life, but it was one of survival. And I think it strengthened us, and it also got us a certain level of integrity. So in, in my country today, I know that, that my reputation is built on the hard work um, and on people seeing that you actually walk the talk um, and that proving that women can do that and that women don't have to be any other way other than you know, work their way through and, and show the competencies to deliver. So I think if... It was tough i mean I, I, I remember very much so it's also been tough on the family side because you've had to work a career, and bring up children. I, mean, I am one of five daughters, but I've got six kids and now a grandchild um, and that was tough it was tough in, in the in um, in I, I guess it's the the dynamics in, in a relationship where um, you are you have a place in a family, you have a place as a wife um, and it it should be It should be compatible with um, what we do in our careers, but it isn't. Um, And I think that had its strains, and so therefore, um, in many, many cases, um, not the life that you really would have wanted for your daughter.
0: Lastly, in closing the discussion today, please could you share a few words of inspiration that you would like to pass on to young women in Africa that are listening to us today?
1: To the girls and the women's out, women out there, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. It is a long journey, but every footstep that you take, just make it count. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your time today.
0: You're welcome. You have been listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective. And we have been talking to the Deputy Secretary General of the United Nations, Ms. Amina Mohamed.